And please turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 10. And this morning we return and we pick up, considering again this wonderful text in which we see how the gospel went out in power to the Gentiles. Last week we considered just the first 33 verses of this text, seeing there God speaking to Cornelius and to Peter, preparing God's people for the final event that we'll read of here this morning. And that is when Peter then comes and he preaches to Cornelius, to a large group of Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit then falls upon them powerfully and they are converted as they believe the gospel. So this morning we are going to give our careful attention to God's gospel in relationship to our own lives. I'll begin our reading this morning at verse 9 and read through the end of the chapter. Uh, We read much of this last week, and so it might be easy to tune it out. It is a larger section of Scripture, but let us give our careful attention to the Word of God. Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 
So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask you, or I ask then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Amen. This is the word of God. As we sit now before the Word of God, we may do so without any real sense that what we do right now is truly extraordinary. We gather right now, as Cornelius said, in the very presence of God for the preaching and hearing of His Word. And yet, because of the regularity with which we meet, and perhaps because of the availability of worship, whether here locally or wherever your travels might take you, the significance of what we do here this morning may be lost, at least to a degree, on each of us. And in that way, that might actually underscore the significance of what we have just read here in God's Word. How so? Well, in our text, we have before us what many have called the Gentile Pentecost. In our text, Peter proclaims the gospel to the Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them powerfully. 
And it is because of this event that the good news of Jesus Christ then began its trek throughout the whole world. It is really not any stretch to say that had this event not occurred, we would not be gathered here together to worship. We would not be gathered here eager to have God's word opened before us that we might worship him. And as I said, in a way, the fact that this is rather ordinary to all of us, it actually underscores the significance of what we are considering here in God's word. And the reality is we often need to be reminded to appreciate what we have in the gospel. We often need to be reminded just how blessed we are to have the gospel available to us in such abundance. That's what Peter actually, or I'm sorry, Paul actually says in Ephesians chapter 2. He calls us to remember the great blessing that we have as Gentile believers. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is truly amazing. And the fact that we can sit here and hear of that, and it sounds somewhat ordinary, speaks to the significance of our text. You see, whenever you are surrounded by something, it is easy to lose your sense of wonder or appreciation for it. And it is no less true when it comes to the greatest news of all, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And perhaps that is why Luke spends more time on this event than any other event in the book of Acts. Well, as this is now the second time that we are blessed to consider how God's gospel went to the Gentiles, as we begin, may it be our prayer that we will leave here this morning with a fresh appreciation for God's work of sovereign grace within each of our lives. Let's begin this morning by considering first the posture of the gospel. The posture of the gospel. Boys and girls, do you know what that word posture means? Do you know what it means when you're considering your posture towards something? It, it, it refers to how you are oriented towards something. So, for example, if we're talking about posture, we could consider our posture to this pulpit. You are postured sitting in front of the pulpit. I am postured standing behind the pulpit, but we are both postured toward this pulpit. It's how we are oriented to it. And whenever we consider posture, we could also consider two directions of posture. You are postured toward this pulpit as you are sitting before it. But this pulpit, we might also consider its posture toward you. We could always dis, uh, consider both directions regarding a posture. Well, here in our text this morning, God's word presents us with the posture of the gospel. And it does so considering two different directions regarding that posture. And those two different postures are here represented by Peter's words. 
These words contain both directions of the posture of the gospel. Consider the first direction. Peter says there in verse 34, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. There he is speaking about God's posture toward us in the gospel. But then second and earlier in verse 28, Peter says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter is speaking about his own posture because of the gospel. We might call these God's posture toward us and God's reposturing of us. So let's consider both of these. First of all, God's word declares God shows no partiality. And this is God's posture toward us in the gospel. What does it mean? Well, some translate this as God is no respecter of persons, which means when it comes to the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel is meant to be declared to all indiscriminately. Listen to what God's word says in 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, hear this, not wishing any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is God's posture in the gospel. Similarly, listen to Ezekiel 18. There God asks, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. God asks that rhetorical question, and then he answers it a few, uh, few verses later. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Listen also to 1 Timothy chapter 2. There it says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Brothers and sisters, God's posture toward you in the gospel is revealed in these ways. He shows no partiality, and no matter who you are this morning, no matter your background, no matter your present circumstances, He desires that you come to know Him in the gospel. This is why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen, last week we considered God's word as it led up to this text, and the whole point of that text was to prepare us to hear and to believe God's word. Well, it reveals something of God's character when that text leads up to this one, so that we will hear, that we will listen and believe without doubting that God is truly postured to us in this way. Listen, you have an enemy. And in Scripture, among other things, he is known as the accuser. And he makes it his aim to so bury you under every accusation of sin that you will forget that this is how God is actually postured toward you in the gospel. John Bunyan illustrates this really well in Pilgrim's Progress. Christian, at one point in the book, enters into the Valley of Humiliation, and there he meets his enemy, Apollyon. And Apollyon is there with his accusations. He's prepared with this long list of actual sins that Christian has committed. And so he stands there hoping to turn Christian out of the way by convincing him that God is not for him. 
He says, listen, you stumbled when you set out. He says, you tried the wrong way to get your burden off your back. You slept sinfully and you lost your scroll. You were filled with fear when you saw the lions. You were filled with pride when you talked about your journey on the way. Satan made it his aim to bury Christian underneath these real accusations of his sin so that he would feel the weight of his guilt and doubt God's goodness toward him. That is why what Bunyan has Christian do is so wonderful. Because Christian is unpersuaded. And he is prepared because he knows God's orientation to him in the gospel. How does Christian answer Apollyon? He says, all this is true. And so much more that you have left out. He said, yeah, I have sinned in all of those ways, and in fact, I could add to your list. But then he goes on saying, I know how God is postured toward me. He says, the prince whom I serve is merciful and ready to forgive. Christian is guarded because he knows God's posture toward him in the gospel. So brothers and sisters, do you believe it this morning? Do you believe, do you hear and trust God's word to you today that this is his posture toward you in the gospel? Will you take God at his word today? Will you lay up this truth within your heart that he desires all to reach repentance? That he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone but desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That God shows no partiality which means you, each and every one of you, he wants you to hear and to believe and to entrust yourself to him in the gospel. This is truly God's posture towards you today in the gospel, which is why we then need to consider the other side of this posture found here in our text. We need to go on to also consider Christ's reposturing of us in the gospel. Here Peter states that implication for every single believer of the gospel. Since God shows no partiality, then it means for you and me, for every believer in Christ, it means, as Peter put it, that God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. In other words, we ought to adopt God's posture in the gospel. We ought to be so oriented to others in this world that we never call anyone else common or unclean. We should actually represent God in this world with the gospel, being willing to go to anyone and everyone. God repostured Peter in our text today so that he would come into alignment with God's posture of the gospel. And as we consider this, we need to begin by noticing when this took place in Peter's life. Notice how all of this took place when Peter was in fellowship with God. Peter was praying. He was in communion with God. Christ. He was walking in fellowship with his God, and yet he still needed God to come and to reorient him with this proper posture of the gospel. 
We can have what is an unacceptable attitude before God regarding others while still walking in fellowship with Christ. And that's why it's good for you and I to consider our own hearts with the help of the Holy Spirit this morning to see where we might need adjustment. Here God's word calls upon us to hear with humility. In Peter's vision, a sheet was lowered down and there were all sorts of unclean animals in it. But that vision was not primarily about food. It was about people. It was about the Gentiles that Peter saw as common or unclean. And so each of us should consider today, if we were to be given such a vision, who would be in my sheet? Who is it that I would place within that sheet calling them common or unclean? Who is it that God would place inside that sheet and say, Joseph, do not call common or unclean anything that I have made clean? Who is it in my heart and life that I am slow to love or slow to go to with the gospel? Who do I believe is beyond the reach of the gospel? Who is Christ calling me today to go to with the gospel? I think this is something we should all consider at some point today. Who would be in your sheet? Who is Christ calling you to repent of your consideration or your posture toward them and instead go to them with the gospel? Now imagine the angels in heaven on that day in our text looking down upon Peter watching all of this take place. They see God giving Peter this vision, and they slowly begin to see what God is doing and how he is putting these various pieces together, how he's sent an angel to go to Cornelius. They begin to see that God is reposturing Peter's heart, and he's pulling together this group of Gentiles, and they see that God is about to open the floodgates of his grace upon the Gentiles. Imagine their great joy in putting the pieces together and seeing what God was about to do. Well, imagine if they're looking down upon this worship service even now with the same kind of anticipation. They're seeing what God is doing in Joseph's heart to turn him and to make him ready to go to somebody with the gospel or Brandon's heart or Craig's heart or any of our hearts. Maybe the angels are watching, seeing the grace of God at work in our hearts, preparing us because he's about to open the floodgates of his gospel to others. May it be that God is so reposturing each of us with the gospel so that we will not call anyone common or unclean. May it be that God will use us as conduits of his grace to others. Well, after this reposturing, both for Peter and in Peter, we see that it led second to the preaching of the gospel. So let's consider next the preaching of the gospel. Now as we begin our consideration of Peter's preaching, we need to notice here how God chose to communicate the gospel. Think about this. In our text, he sent an angel already to Cornelius. And he gave a vision to Peter, and then the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter all of these extraordinary ways of God dealing with his people. But then, 
When it came time for the gospel to be declared, God chose preaching to be his means. God chose preaching to be the means by which he would work and bring the gospel forth. Why? Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 saying, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. God chose through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. This is God's ordinary means. This is God's chosen means to put his power on display through the folly of preaching. Here in our text, we see how God used extraordinary means, that vision and the angel, to bring about or to set up the circumstances in which then he would use his ordinary means, preaching, for the gospel to go forth. So let's consider what Peter preached Here the gospel is summarized by Peter in a few quick parts. Really, five words could summarize Peter's representation of the gospel. Anointed, confirmed, crucified, raised, and witnessed. First of all, he tells us that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit and with power. Second, he tells us that Jesus was confirmed in his ministry through the works that he did. He went about doing good and healing many who were sick and oppressed. But then after that, he was crucified. He was crucified upon the cross, but he did not stay there. He was then raised from the dead. And finally, he was witnessed. He was witnessed by many. He was witnessed as eating and drinking after his death. And in his resurrection, if you know those five words, anointed, confirmed, crucified, crucified, raised, and witnessed, you can share the gospel with anybody. If you'll just memorize those five words, you will be ready to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. But what does this mean? Is it enough for us to simply know these facts? Is it simply enough for us to know the historical nature of these events? Well, no, Peter here gets to the point, and he does so with great clarity. He does so very plainly. Why is it that we need the gospel? Why is the gospel essential? Well, in the first place, and notice this is where Peter begins, it is because of judgment. He doesn't skip over this, but in fact emphasizes it. Peter tells us that in order to preach the gospel, we must preach that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. People need to know why they need to hear the gospel. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Jesus himself warned, saying, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Listen, everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God. And because the wages of sin is indeed death, every man, woman, and child is in desperate need of a remedy for sin. We must be clear, telling people that the judgment is coming. But then we must go on 
Telling them that if we are going to avoid God's just judgment for sin, we need the second part of Peter's point. Not only is there judgment, but there's also forgiveness. And then he reaches the climax of his message saying, To him, Jesus, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. That is why the gospel is essential. No one will escape the judgment seat of God, but forgiveness is freely offered to us in Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's truly amazing. And it seems so absolutely simple that it's actually hard to believe. Can it truly be That I just believe upon Jesus Christ for my salvation? It seems so good. It seems too good to be true. Well, in a few chapters, in Acts chapter 16, we're going to consider how Peter and Silas are arrested and imprisoned. And in the middle of the night, an angel comes and unlocks all of the prison doors and sets everyone free. The jailer wakes up, he thinks everyone's gone, and he goes to commit suicide. He goes to take his own life because that would have actually been required of him if he let everyone go. But Paul and Silas are still there, and Paul calls out to him saying, hold on a minute, wait, we are all still here. And there must be no doubt that Paul was preaching the gospel because then the jailer comes running to Paul and Silas' feet and he falls down before them and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is that simple. And it actually glorifies the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that simple. It is all done by Christ. You simply believe upon him. So what does it mean to then believe upon Jesus? Well, consider an analogy. Imagine two men discussing whether or not airplanes will fly. Imagine these two men first sit down and they begin studying and discussing all of the scientific principles as to whether or not an airplane will fly. And they see, yes, indeed, the laws of physics will hold, that airplane will fly. And then they go to the airport, and they spend an entire day sitting there watching airplanes take off and land. And both of them look, and they see with their eyes, and they say, yes, those airplanes will fly. And then finally, the airplane pulls up, and it's time for the two of them to get in. And one eagerly gets in. He has no problem. Without hesitation, he entrusts himself to the airplane. But the other says, I can't do it. I can't entrust myself to the airplane. Well, which of these two men believes upon the airplane? Well, it's obvious. It's the one who gets into it. It's the one who entrusts himself to it. And that, the same thing is true of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it is insufficient to simply believe the historical facts about Jesus, although it is essential. It is also incomplete to simply believe that Jesus can save sinners. You see, you must personally Trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You must entrust yourself to Him 
and you will be saved. That is what it means to believe the gospel. And the testimony of God's word to you today is, if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And so believe his word and not yourself. Believe his word and not any doubts that Satan might introduce into your mind. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, next we need to go on to consider what happened as Peter preached. And the text says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So let's consider finally the power of the gospel. As we focus upon what happens here, as we focus now upon the power of the gospel, notice what the text says. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. In other words, God worked through the preaching of his word. Notice in the text, God is not dependent upon the response of his hearers in order to work by his word. Instead, the opposite is true. It is actually because of the activity of the Holy Spirit that these hearers come to new life and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here in the text, we see at least three things about the power of the gospel. First of all, we see here that it is the Holy Spirit who converts sinners. The Holy Spirit is the one who powerfully applies the gospel to hearers' hearts. When the word of God is preached, it is not as if God is up in heaven, wringing his hands, hoping someone will choose him. No, instead, as Cornelius himself said, when the word of God is faithfully opened, God is present. God is there in the preaching of his word, and it is he who powerfully acts through it. That is why we see here in our text how the Holy Spirit fell upon the hearers and then they believed. This is why Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Well, second, we see here that the Holy Spirit then connects us to the church. He converts sinners and then he connects us to the church. Immediately, Peter recognizes the work of God. As he is preaching, he sees how the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they believe. Not only that, everyone who has come with him also recognizes that these Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. And so Peter declares that they should receive the sign of the covenant that marks people out of this world and as those who belong to the church. In other words, they are baptized. The Holy Spirit connects us to the church. But then third and finally, we see here that the Holy Spirit conforms us to Christ. He converts sinners, he connects us to the church, and he conforms us to Christ. Now you might ask, where do we see that in the text? And I'm glad you've asked. Because it actually shows up at two points here in the text. The first is earlier in Peter's vision. God said to Peter in no uncertain terms, what God has made clean, do not call common. And so when the Holy Spirit falls powerfully upon these Gentiles, God has made them clean. Or in other words, he has set them apart. Or in other words, he has sanctified them unto himself. Positionally, these Gentiles are now sanctified. And as the Holy Spirit has now fallen upon them, he begins that 
great sanctifying work within them. He is, after all, the Holy Spirit, and he will progressively make these believers holy. What we see here in this text is really reminiscent of that vision of Isaiah all the way, or uh, of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. There the Holy Spirit gives a vision to Ezekiel, taking him out to this valley full of dry bones. He walks him around to show him that nothing is living, everything here is dead. And then he asks him, Ezekiel, can these bones live? He says, you know, Lord. And then the Holy Spirit tells Ezekiel to preach over these bones. He says, say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. And again, hear who the actor is. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. In that vision, Ezekiel goes and he preaches to a valley of dry bones. And then they start shaking. And they come to life. And the sinews grow on them. And the skin covers them. And they come to life. Well, That's actually what we read about here in Acts chapter 10. Because here is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, speaking through his servant Peter, And because his word is going out in the power of the Holy Spirit, these sinners are converted. They are joined to the church and they are sanctified. And herein we see the power of the gospel. And so I have two questions for you regarding the power of the gospel. First is, do you believe in the power of the gospel for yourself personally? Do you believe in the power of the gospel for your own heart and life? Listen, the Christian life is not a matter of self-effort. No, instead it is a matter of God's powerful working by his word and spirit. And so we should see, hear, and believe here in our text in the power of the Holy Spirit to convert, to connect, and to conform We need to trust in Christ for all of these things through the work of his Holy Spirit. And instead of relying upon ourselves in any way, we need to look to Jesus Christ and his powerful working in the gospel. But then second, and similarly, do you believe in the power of the gospel to advance Christ's kingdom here on earth? Christian ministry, just like the Christian life, is not a matter of self-effort. Instead, it is a matter of God's powerful working by his word and spirit. Here in our text, we do see that God works through means. We see that Peter is preaching. We see that Cornelius has come and he has gathered with him all sorts of hearers. But ultimately, you cannot deny that as you read the text, God is the primary actor. He moved Cornelius to bring those. He brought Peter in to preach. He commanded Peter to preach. And it is through that preaching that then God, through his spirit, fell upon these believers. As we, together, as a body, seek first the kingdom of God, as we desire to see 
Christ's kingdom advance here in Black Forest and Colorado Springs? Do we do so by self-effort? Or are we relying upon the power of God in the gospel? Well, let us remember today the blessing that God has given to us in the gospel. This is, after all, God's gospel. Let us remember today his posture toward us in the gospel and toward this world. Let us remember his plan to proclaim the good news through the preaching of the gospel. And let us rest, let us trust in his power to work in our lives by the gospel and in the lives of all whom he will call. Let us remember the gospel and rejoice. Let us pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, for your powerful working by way of your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would cause us to believe these things by faith, Lord God, will we be guarded? Will you cause us to be guarded by your posture toward us in the gospel? Lord, you know that we will continue to sin against you throughout our lives. May we not make any excuse for sin or turn the grace of God into license for sin, but may we also not doubt your grace to us in the gospel. May we be armed instead with the gospel and your readiness to forgive. Lord, please posture us by the gospel. Lord, if indeed in our hearts there are some who we call common or unclean, will you grant us repentance? And not just a repentance in word, but also in deed that we would go to others with the grace and the good news of Jesus. Lord, will you bless us with the preaching of the gospel? Will you remind us each and every week of your grace to us in Jesus Christ? Will you strengthen us and sanctify us and equip us through the preaching of your holy word? And Lord, will you cause us to trust in the power of the gospel, both in our lives and for the lives of others? Lord, make us faithful like Cornelius and Peter, to be used by you for the sake of the gospel. But may we do so from a place of rest, trusting in your sovereign plan and your powerful working by the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would do this to the glory and the praise of your name. Amen. Well, let's turn together.